This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Triple R's weekly dive into the future and how to avoid it. I'm Adam Grubb. In the studio with me is Jed McCartney. How do you do, Jed? I'm well, thanks, Adam. So we got a pre-record tonight and on Thursday night, well, actually Friday morning, it was midnight when we started this interview um, because it was with a US author. Uh, Rachel Lorden be her name, and she is a food historian and author of two books, including 2012's Cuisine and Empire Cooking in World History, which the New York Review of Books described as a triumph, pointing the way to a wholly new kind of historiography that can hold its own with more familiar work on political, economic, social and intellectual history. And uh, that is fair praise and really enjoyed this conversation, as did Sarah. So we're going to hear from her for the rest of the show, pretty much. This is Rachel Lawden. Well, so uh, we want to talk to you about all things history of food and how that influences your views of the current food trends and food movements. But let's go back in time. Oh, well, should we go back in your time or in the world's time? Let's start with Rachel. <laughs> well, I, I know because we're going to be talking about some things which uh, I, I think you had a little bit of a look at Greening the Apocalypse and the kind of issues that we cover. Like, If anything, we're going to be associated with movements that are outside of the mainstream agricultural movement, sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, and these are things things which or at least some of the cultural effects around those things that you've um written about critically and intelligently so i don't know we'll try not to get our defenses up (laughs) i think it's going to be as aggressive as i can (laughs) i like how somebody introduced you as a food historian and contrarian (laughs) in a radio show i listened to an interview with you (laughs) i thought that was great but but it's interesting to note that I've heard um, in your history that you, your your own parents were people that would be considered by our standards today people involved in you know the home economy and food production. So tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, yes, I grew up on a farm in southern England. It was a working farm. It was actually the dream farm for uh, folks like you uh, because it was all cycles. We had both grain and dairy, and all the manure from the dairy went back on the land, Um, everything was recycled, um, and it actually was efficient enough to be profitable, Uh, so that this, I think, was a wonderful introduction to the world of food. Hmm. Great, and you've had a uh, rich 
history and yourself in terms of your um, your progress and your your various um, jobs and and the like. But you've set it upon. You've created a niche for yourself as a food historian these days. And your book, Cuisine and Empire, is a bit of a touchstone in the field. Do you want to give us a bit of a history of human food and what we ate throughout time? Uh, you know, I get a sense hunter-gatherers had a very broad diet. Nuts, berries, wild grains, and, and meat, of course. But that changed with the agricultural revolution. Can you pick up the story there? Yes. I mean, there have been two great revolutions in the history of food. One is, um, I prefer to call it the grain revolution rather than the agricultural revolution because it's the shift to grains uh, that leads people to develop agriculture. Nobody would have bothered growing the grains if they hadn't already been eating them. And then pretty much until about 100, 150 years ago, for most people, um, 90% of the population, grains, and where grains uh, didn't grow, roots were basically what they ate. It would have provided between 70 and 90% of their diets. Uh, This wouldn't have applied to the rich but to everybody else. So when um, one looks at, say, um, the world's religions and the role that wheat uh, or uh, it plays in and bread plays in Christianity or rice plays in certain Asian religions, there's a good reason for that because these really were the staff of life. Then with the Industrial Revolution, all that changes and we move to... Uh, the kind of diets that most people eat today, which are so different from what most people ate in the past that I think it's really hard now for us to think ourselves back into what eating was like in the past. So the large percentage of what we ate was grain, which one thing I've heard you say, which I thought was unusual, was that even vegetables weren't a huge part of the diet of peasants. No, they they almost certainly weren't, partly because they're very difficult to preserve. And in most parts of the world, um, they don't grow year-round. There's always a wet season or a dry season or a cold season when there aren't uh, vegetables available. And so um, what people were really after was something that would sustain them throughout the year. Um, the summers or the good season, there was always a good season somewhere and then you would have uh, fruits and vegetables as well as grains. But in the season, usually before harvest, grains were the things that were going to get you through. Yeah, I can see if survival was the main concern and space was the limiting factor then you would focus on those calorie crops and i'm also interested in whether wild foods were a significant supplement at least because i think without some of these things there's going to be nutritional disorders uh, i think probably were um well just consider growing up my growing up in england mm. um we never bought vegetables um we grew them all um, in the far, uh, it, that was my mother's job um, in the garden, and it was terrific in September. And by February, cabbage was beginning to look awfully old. And by March, my father was saying, oh, for something green, oh, for something green, because cabbage was essentially the only vegetable that 
you could harvest through the winter. And I think that's true in many parts of the world. You know, you can make sauerkraut out of cabbage. Um, you can put roots in a root cellar. But it's very rare for you to be able to grow fresh vegetables year-round in most places. Yeah. We and do have that luxury here yeah. in Melbourne. Uh, but we're in, a, we're in a country which was colonized because of the, the food technology of sauerkraut, staving off right. um, scurvy for, for the first fleet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, scurvy, for example, um, was a curse throughout the United States, say, until about the 1920s. Because the winter in the United States was so uh, severe in the Midwest that um, essentially all everybody who lived in the country got scurvy in the winter. And that's only 100 years ago. Right. So, so traditional peasants people, it's certainly not a lot of meat and by the sound of it, not a great deal of vegetables, at least not through the season. You talk about the type of cuisines that they developed with that limited palate as humble cuisines. Could you describe what people ate? And I know it might be hard to generalize across an entire globe, but give us, if, if there are similarities, could you please share them? Uh, sure. Um, I, first of all, I want to say I call them humble cuisines, not low cuisines, because there was often considerable skill in cooking them. And also because if you depend entirely on maize tortillas in Mexico or bread in England or rice or um, millet in China and Japan, you are going to become very much skilled and quite a connoisseur of that particular food. So I don't want to suggest that because these are limited, they are in some way lesser. What you find with all these humble cuisines is that they're based on carbohydrates because that's what gives you the calories, and it's always calories first. That they um, are prepared generally, um, particularly if you're in the country, by the woman, uh, that they are not cookbook-based, um, that they are usually eaten from a communal dish or communal bowl, often with the fingers, and that the transmission of knowledge about how to do it is a kind of apprentice knowledge. It's not a book knowledge. So they're very uh, simple and basic, but for all that, not unsophisticated. I mean, I've had in Mexico maize tortillas in the country that, you know, the finest chefs in Mexico cannot rival because they haven't had those years of practice at dealing with a dish that looks simple but actually takes great skill to prepare. Mm. Yeah, you think about all the grains actually and the incredibly sophisticated ways that they are manipulated in today's culture as well, like the million and one things you can do with maize or with rice or especially with wheat actually. Soybean. Oh, amazing. Mm. Sorry, Sarah. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, what Adam touched on before, was there much foraging going on at all? Or? Um, yes, there would have been uh, foraging. Um, the trouble, let me say two things about that. First, there was always a fear, particularly among the wealthier, of becoming like an animal. And so the further you could get away from wild foods, the better was the general view. 
that wild foods were, if you ate them, you would revert to a kind of animal status mm. uh, because you were like a cow or like a, you know, a pig or something out there foraging. So it wasn't, whereas today we think of foraged foods as kind of a, um, a wonderful blessing, that in many parts of the world that wasn't the way they were thought of. But of course they were an important part of the diet. The other problem with foraged foods, and I foraged all the time on the farm as a kid, and so I sort of both enjoyed it and realized that they're usually very low calorie, Often, you know, a nice supplement. We used to eat um, leaves off the hedges in the spring. We called them bread and butter. And I suspect that was good for vitamin C after the <laughs> cabbage winter. And then there were blackberries, and those were delicious. But all of these were supplementary foods. They, they came, they went, um, they were there for a week or a month, um, and... Um, they they didn't fill you up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually run foraging workshops, and you could see them as quite an antidote to the modern diet, which tends to be high in calories and arguably less so in nutrients, whereas they had very much the opposite. But that would be supplemental also to the diets that you're describing if they're quite grain-based. Right. So possibly an important factor nutritionally. Um, but yet... The type of diet that you're describing is a long way from the one that's come to be romanticized in uh, return to peasant type diets that we have seen popularized through the slow food movement. But before we get to that, why don't you take us through the history of how we got to today away from these, uh, for the most of us, away, f away from these humble diets, these humble cuisines, to something uh, quite different? Well, we got to what I call a middling cuisine because uh, it's not middling in the sense of uh, mediocre, but middling in the sense that the rich had always been able to afford meat, um, vegetables, fats, sugar, all the things that uh, we now criticize in the diet. What happens, I think, in the 18th and 19th century is there is both a political and a nutritional and a technological revolution. The political revolution is the one we all know about, that pe uh, societies um, begin to move away from the idea that uh, the ruling class and uh, particularly the king are there by divine right and instead moved to a system where they believe that the entire society has to accede to the political structure. Now, when everybody is a player in politics, you can't have a system where a tiny proportion are eating one kind of diet, a high cuisine with lots of meat and fat and sugar, and everybody else is eating a low cuisine or a humble cuisine, which is largely carbohydrate. Along with that, you have a technological revolution where with fossil fuels coming in, two things happen. One, you can move food around the globe for the first time. Um, in France, say, just before the, before the French Revolution, um, if a grain harvest failed in one area, 
because, for example, daddy long legs, that's a particular pest, come and eat all the young grain, you cannot move grain more than 10 miles unless you're moving it by water. So you could have starvation just down the road. With the railroad and the steamship, you can suddenly move stuff around the globe for very low cost, so that a lot of the constraints on the quantity of food go down just because you can move it to where it's needed. Mm. And the other thing that happens with fossil fuels is that the work of preparing particularly grains drops enormously so that you can actually produce them much, much more inexpensively. And again, that leads to much greater accessibility for people to better diets. It would also be the moving of phosphate rocks around the world and and the production from the Haber-Bosch method of nitrogen from the atmosphere using fossil fuels. Yeah, so so many factors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to look at the transport and the processing more because um, the agricultural side of the story gets told much more often than the other sides. But, yeah, all three. Yeah, and because you're powering your tractor on fossil fuels, you don't need the the paddock to feed the bullock or the draft horse as well. So we we could probably go on for hours just on all the ways that enabled production. Yeah. Yeah. But we haven't just seen... The expansion of the grain-based diet in this middling cuisine? No, no. I mean, what's happened is that people were able uh, to bring fresh meat to market because, again, of transport. Um, beforehand, getting the only way to get meat into cities was to walk it into the city, and that created all kinds of problems, both of health and of accessibility. Now, uh, with the railroad, you could ship the meat in, uh, with refrigeration as well. You begin to be able to add tropical produce to your diet, so you get particularly more sugar, but also more fruits and vegetables. So the whole nature of the diet changes to one much more like what the rich had eaten in the past. Now, now we know there are problems with that diet but the initial change to it was a vast improvement in uh, human health and also in human access to a decent life it's good to be reminded of that well could you talk us through like some of the things that we take for granted today which might be part of almost every day or even things that have come we've come to see as low status foods but by historical standards would have been eaten only by the rich oh well white bread white sugar <laughs> i eat a lot of nutmeg that probably counts does it <laughs> <laughs> no nutmeg does that count as low status now um spices were always for the rich um people think that peasants drank wine for example well no wine was something they could sell so french peasants did not drink wine they either drank water or they took the skins of the grapes after they had been uh, the juice had been pressed out and used the skins to produce a kind of very low quality vinegary 
um, drink. Take us through some of the others. I was thinking one one that came to mind that you mention in the book is uh, French fries, or as we call them, chips. Yes, well, that's a very tricky thing to prepare, isn't it? You've got, I mean, the potatoes are not so expensive, but you've got a lot of oil or uh, other kind of fat, which is extremely expensive until very recently, because the world had a fat shortage because it was until the 1920s, because fat was needed for an industrial lubricant, for cosmetics, for pharmaceuticals, for all kinds of things besides food. So fat was really hard to come by. And then you've got to have um, the cooking equipment, a very large pot that you can um, put fat into, so that the French fry in its initial appearance was something that only well it could come in in two ways one it could come in for the very wealthy or the other way it came in was in uh, large mass catering for um, street food fish and chips and that kind of thing Hmm. one of the things that i've heard you discuss is the connection between democracy and the widespread availability of this middling cuisine and it's even, I've, I've heard you through that lens express a certain amount of affection or at least appreciation for, I'm going to say the M word, McDonald's. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the reason why McDonald's shot around the world is that it is in some ways a very visible symbol of the link between food and the life political and economic uh, life in the United States. I mean, what, what is a McDonald's hamburger? It is uh, white bread, which was the dream of every peasant. It is fresh meat. It is fresh vegetables, all together with a sauce. Sauces are always for the elite in the past, with a, um, a cold iced drink. Ice, you know, was again a luxury. Served in uh, clean surroundings at an accessible, uh, bright surroundings at an accessible price. And safe, too. Safe. I mean, McDonald's has got an amazing safety record, so you didn't get sick eating it. That around the world is something pretty novel and important, that accessibility to everybody. Mm. I mean, of course, it's not accessible to everybody around the world. In many parts of the world, it's still a middle-class thing to be able to go to a McDonald's, but um, it's no longer an upper-class thing. I like how in your book you wrote about how McDonald's tailors the burger depending on where it is. So in India, they have the paneer instead of the meat? Yes. I thought that was very um, interesting. I think it's fascinating because people assume that McDonald's is absolutely uniform, but it's neither is what McDonald's offers uniform, nor is the way people use it uniform. One of my favorite examples is a student, I think she was from Thailand, but it was somewhere in Southeast Asia, who said in Southeast Asia, it was a wonderful introduction because it meant that young women who were working in the city as 
secretaries or um, in a factory or something could go out and eat in public without being thought to be prostitutes. Mm. Wow. Now, historically, and at least to some extent today, food is used as a status signifier. Can you talk about how that works? Uh, well, of course, today, only the rich can afford to eat like peasants, right? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> what we've done is to invert the snobbery. I mean, you can more or less check it off. Anything that we think today that is kind of really great, you know, the most local food or the freshest food or the lightly cooked food, those are all things that in the past uh, the wealthy would have shunned and vice versa. I was thinking about that earlier today in terms of Melbourne because I think after it was colonised, the poor in Melbourne were eating oysters all the time. And now mm-hmm. it's the it's being served in the elite restaurants more so. It's yeah. strange to think that the foods that poor people ate are now elevated, and it's something. It's very everything's upside down. It seems. Mm. Well, um, it really has been a, a very rapid change because, yes, I mean, it, or like you know, the foraged foods is another example that we were talking about earlier. That's another example. Or people paying through the nose for polenta is strange to me. (laughs) Especially because you said that polenta predates pasta in Italy and the history of their food. That was something in your book I found incredible, that the modern Italian pasta didn't happen until after the Second World War. Well, I mean, they had made some pasta before, but for ordinary Italians, um, and there's a lot of evidence for this, you know, any anything that is white and made of wheat is a very recent thing for people to be able to afford. So whether it's white bread or uh, pasta, those are things that come in really in the 20th century. Hmm. The, ki- the kind of things that inv- have become these sort of inverse status signifiers, we're talking artisanal loaves of bread Fresh organic vegetables, um, possibly you know preserved, free-range pork, sausage products, these kind of things. To buy that stuff, it's out of it's out of my price range. Um, a lot of it, and yet there is there's got to be a certain amount of something to it. Insofar as you can go forage things for free, it's very easy. If you are going to make bread at home, if you going to do it as cheaply as possible if you're willing especially if you're willing to pay the capital cost of getting a grain mill but the cheapest loaf of bread you're going to make is a whole grain um, sourdough because you don't you've only one input oh other than a bit pinch of salt so, so it's kind of this weird thing where people that are genuinely heading towards frugality and sustainability and those kind of ethics might end up eating very similar foods to people who are riding the wave, the cultural wave that values that kind of stuff and yet are are spending way more than the average person on their food. I think that's right. I think where we've got to go is that, you know, the world has succeeded. The job is not finished, obviously. There are still people who don't have enough to eat. But the 
accessibility of food to a wide public has been going up much more rapidly than at any time in human history. And, you know, some of that's good and some of that we are realizing if you live entirely off white bread and fat and sugar, that's not as good as people had once dreamt it might be. So one has to now, the job now is to move to the next stage, but we can't go back. Uh, You've written critically of the slow food movement. Can you give us a nutshell of, of what your opinions are there? Well, I was so excited when I heard about it because it sounded wonderful. You know, um, it's just a terrific name for one thing, slow food against fast food, which you know does have problems. I'm the first to admit that. I think the trouble with slow food is twofold. One, that the food in the past for many people was not that good. The whole grain bread that you're going to make with your grain mill, you've got a little grain mill providing the power and you've got access to really good grain that's been cleaned and doesn't have all kinds of grit and stones and weed seeds in it. And you don't have to worry about uh, some of the really dangerous drug-like weed seeds in it that really made people sick in the past. Um, So both the food was not that good and the work was extraordinary in the past. That's the one side of things. The other side of things that worries me about slow food is, again, going back to the political issue. If we're to have reasonably egalitarian societies politically and economically, we have to have people have access to the same kinds of food. Now, some people want to spend more on food and other people don't really care about it, but that's a different matter from setting up a system where there are separate kinds of food for separate kinds of people, as was the case throughout most of history. And I think we've always got to be aware of those political underpinnings to the food system. It's certainly a sad perversity if it does become more about status signaling than genuine values, or if Mm -hmm. it already started that way. And you certainly, in your critique of it, you suggest that there was a large marketing uh, motive between. I'm not sure if everybody of all, all of our listeners will know the history of the slow food movement, but could you just tell us a little bit about that and where it began in Italy? Yes, um, it began. Um, goodness, I'd, I'd have to refresh my um, mind on the details. It began in Italy when <laughs> Pe- uh, Carlos Petrini. That's yeah. the one. Uh, yep. Uh, Uh, um, announced that he was going to fight fast food in the terms of a McDonald's coming into Rome. Obviously, there's a lot of nationalism in that as well as a a dislike of um, fast food. And it spread really very rapidly and very quickly because it was a very kind of appealing idea to people who worried about the quality of food. I don't know in Australia, but in the United States, it's lost a lot of steam and a lot of visibility, largely on the grounds that it was uh, believed, became to be believed to be elitist. Mm. Yeah, you can certainly pick up some of those vibes. Um, I I don't, I mean, here in the United States, I wouldn't say it's gone completely. 
but it's more or less vanished. Mm. It's not an issue anymore. I think it's still an issue here in Australia. I don't know why. I don't know what the difference would be. I mean, one of them might be that we don't have um, those concentrated animal feeding operations and stuff. I don't know if there's not as many evils of that nature plaguing here yet. So I think I, I think people haven't written off slow food. I think they're still hopeful mm. that it would I, work. It would be very interesting, wouldn't it, to do a, a, a comparison. I would say in the United States it's not that they're, the concern about uh, the food system has vanished, but that all kinds of other organizations have more visibility than slow food. Mm. Now, a lot of the significance of this conversation comes down to the st- sustainability of the food system. And you could say that the industrialization of the food system, and you talked about how essential fossil fuels have been to ramping it up and creating this democratization of these rich foods, the middling cuisine, or the widespread distribution of them. Anyway, uh, it seems to be that it's depleting its own topsoil faster than, I mean, agriculture that involves plowing tends to do that anyway, but it seems to be doing it faster generally than than it was in the past. While irrigation is creating salination, we're getting aquifer depletion globally so we're running out of the fresh water for that irrigation there's dead zones and algal blooms from the runoff of the fertilizers and it's arguably almost a third of the global contribution to greenhouse gases come from the food and agriculture sector which is undermining its own viability because it only exists because we live in this interglacial where there's relatively stable weather and if the slow food and the related regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture type systems turn out to be more sustainable, and certainly there's some UN reports that promote small-scale organic stuff as a way of feeding the world, uh, not that I have complete faith in that being a possibility, but I really want to believe that because if they are more sustainable and they can feed the current population of the world, if that's true, then then there would be every reason to make that kind of eating something that's seen as elite, to be something to be seen as to strive for, to be a bit, you know, to get snobby about. And in which case, the whole slow food movement of making it, uh, even if people are doing it for the wrong reasons, like it would, you could see it as a success. I I think what. Well, a we're in an—I mean, we're in a very tricky situation, obviously, just because the world population has exploded so rapidly, yeah. um, and uh, nobody, I think, sees mass starvation as the the way out of uh, out of the situation. Um, I tend to take the view that what we need is more. I, the word industrialized has such a bad ring to it that it's hard to say it. But, you know, we now know a great deal more about precision agriculture, for example, than we did in the past. And I think that's the way we have to go. I don't think 
Uh, I, I'm not sure why we want small scale. It's a tremendous, it, it's huge amounts of labor. And a lot of people in cities t- sort of wave their hands and say, we really want to go back to small scale agriculture. Uh, a smaller number of them are actually doing it. I, I think there really are economies of scale in agriculture as in other things. And I think that's the way we've got to go. Um, I would love to have, you know, a long chat because uh, these are really tricky issues. Yeah. I mean, any experiments are worth it. But I am not convinced that going back to small scale and or organic is the obvious way. Yeah. I think part of it is the ability to be really adapted to the soil conditions and the local conditions and reactive to environmental conditions um, or weather conditions as they happen, which is harder to do at the large scale. But I do have thoughts on this too and hopes that we could avoid the drudgery aspects and that come with that kind of farming and hopefully information technology can take up some of the knowledge burden that is required to be able to farm really productively organically. But that it would be a wonderful discussion to have sometime, but yeah. maybe not tonight. No. Well, my next project is uh, to try and think about what we want from farmers um, because the farmer tends to drop out of all these discussions. And because I was so proud of my father as a farmer and because he was large scale and because he did care about the land, I've been trying to understand the history of the farmer's role in the English-speaking world over the last 200 years. And um, it's a very interesting topic. Hmm. Well, we look forward to whatever outcomes written or otherwise come from that that exploration we should say good night to you or good morning as it were (laughs) and uh thanks so much for being on greening the apocalypse rachel lorden well i'm delighted to be here adam and sarah thank you so much hey um and just in case there's time for us to add this to the interview if you can just put in a nutshell um you've you've written about food waste that there is some difficulties in just seeing it as an entirely as a negative. Could you explain why? Oh, yes. Um, well, there are three kinds of uh, states the food system can be in. One is there isn't enough food to feed the relevant social group. That's a disaster. One is there's just enough food to feed the relevant social group. That's really scary. And the third one is that there's some surplus food because you never know when there's going to be a plague or a war or a drought or a fire or something that destroys a lot of your food. Mm. Um, And so I think you've got to have some slack in the system. And so for me, the important questions are, how much slack do you need? And what do you do with that slack? Because unfortunately, uh, most foods do not are not stable over long periods of time. The great thing would be to have a kind of rotating system where you are always eating up last year's or the year before surplus. Um, but apart from grains, which is another one, reason why they've been so important, you know, you it's very hard to keep green beans or meat 
over long periods of time and to kind of eat them up in a systematic way. So I I really want people to ask what make not only um, about waste, but what makes a food system safe? How much extra do we have to have? Mm. It's an extremely well-made point. I take a little bit of solace in that there are all these animals um, being fed grains, which seems like if things, things went badly, you could eat the animals and then there's all this human quality food that was being used inefficiently. That's a nice... <laughs> I mean, suffer the poor animals, but <laughs> thanks for being there. exactly what happened in the past. Yep. Oh, great. People, if food went short, they had a system. First yeah. they ate the animals, then they ate the grain, except for the seed grain for next year. That was the last thing you ate because yeah. if you ate the seed grain, you're in really bad shape. Then you ate the forage food. Then you ate sort of bricks and soil, and then you ate each other and your seed grain. Hmm. Well, let's hope we don't get – I mean, any of those last <laughs> three or four stages I'd be happy to do without – Thank you for leaving us on a high note. (laughs) Yeah, it was wonderful to talk to you. Okay, great. Really enjoyed it. And your book. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.